a um, serious uh, message today in that it is there's a lot of um, kind of didactic um, training that is going into the message that will be given today. Um, and our, our scripture reading will come from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 18. Starting at verse 18, it says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are changed into the same image from glory to glory, to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Our message uh, for tonight is entitled, Sharpening the Mind. Sharpening the Mind. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to once again study your word and your truths. Lord, um, help us to take the lessons um, here in these scriptures to heart, let them be applied and etched into our very, the fabric of our beings by your Holy Spirit. Lord, again, I just ask to be made a nail upon the wall. Rusty, sorry nail, Lord, but upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let me not be seen or heard. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. All right. So we are going to jump to the book of, of uh, uh, this, uh, this is Matthew, actually the book of Matthew. I don't know why I put Mark there. Matthew chapter 17, starting at verse 14. Matthew chapter 17, starting at verse 14 says, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. So Matthew and Mark discussed this. This is maybe why I made the full paw here of putting Mark here instead of Matthew. Mark chapter 9, Matthew chapter 17. This is the story that happens immediately after Jesus has um, come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. What's important about that story is that Jesus takes three disciples up, Peter, Peter, James, and John, but he leaves the other nine disciples. While the nine disciples are left behind, and while the three are having this amazing experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, a man, we are told in Mark chapter 9, brings his son, who has a demon, um, a dumb spirit, the scripture says, that is trying to destroy him. Um, and so, as Jesus is up in the mountain, the nine disciples, who we would have to believe have worked miracles before, are unable to deal with this challenge. When Jesus comes down from the mountain, Mark 9 tells us that uh, the, the scribes are, um, are, are questioning his disciples. Jesus jumps in to defend them. Um, and, and as he stands there, um, uh, a, a man brings his son. I can imagine the crowd clears out and opens up. Um, and as Jesus and the three disciples uh, kind of are returning to the situation, you can see that um, there's a major showdown about to happen. 
as Christ is, is dealing with the situation, the man, if you can imagine, humbly comes before him and his son is there. As they are talking, this, the demon is trying to throw fits through this boy to destroy him. The key words here in verse 16 says, but they could not cure him. The nine disciples, honestly, were jealous. There was some contention that they were not included with the three that had gone up into the mountain and seen the transfiguration. They were so upset that their discontent seems to have removed some of their spiritual power. And so they were not able to do what they should have been able to do. Verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. The Bible says in verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Jesus is able to deal with the demon right away. And in fact, there's a great dialogue between Jesus and the father that we're going to discuss in a few minutes. But Jesus takes him, he rebukes the demon and the demon comes out of him the very same hour. When the nine disciples get Jesus alone, they ask this question. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? They were perplexed. Why didn't they have the spiritual power necessary? Why couldn't they move upon this demon to leave this man alone? Why is it that they were kind of stuck where they were and couldn't get the results that they wanted it? And I tell you, just to just kind of make this more practical to each of us, probably every one of us has something going on in our lives that we think we should be able to deal with, that somehow God is not allowing us to move. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a broken marriage. Maybe it's a bad habit or, or disease. There's something in our lives. And then, of course, there's those of us who are looking not just at wayward children, but others who we think we should be able to influence to come back to God, but we're not having any effect. It's just doesn't seem to be working. And privately now, you get to ask Christ the question, why couldn't we cast it out? Why can't I deal with the fact that I, I, you know, I'm dealing with this addiction problem or, 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 I'm, or I'm stuck um, uh, in a rut when it comes to maybe the financial part of my life? Why, Lord, uh, is nothing seeming to work? I think it's most powerful when applied to why is it that those who are under um, in, or in the uh, area of my influence, why is it that I cannot reach them for the gospel of Jesus, with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why is it that it seems so difficult? And I can tell you, after traveling a lot around the world and preaching, that there are parts of the world that are just recalcitrant to the gospel of Jesus Christ and parts of Europe and Australia, definitely here in North America now, there are places that it is almost impossible to, it seems to, impossible to preach this gospel, which is why the pastor who spoke about amen and going um, to the outer islands of Yap and bringing the health message is so important. We live in a time when reaching people is going to be more and more difficult. It will take very sharp Christian minds to be able to work for God in these last days. Verse 20. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have, a, have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And look at the last part of this church, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
if you have the faith of a mustard seed. Jesus said, it is because you lack faith. It's your unbelief. You, you stood there dealing with the man, talking to his son, praying and trying to, to elicit an effect. But in fact, you didn't really believe because your faith is the wrong kind of faith. It's, it's, maybe it's a faith on display, but it just didn't work is what Jesus is saying. But Jesus gives us a hint here. He said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, a mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds, yet it makes one of the biggest trees. And I always thought it was the size of the seed that was relevant here, that Jesus was actually speaking to the fact that the seed is so small, but it makes such a big tree. But as I studied it, what it really looks like is, is more like is that the mustard seed is persistent. The mustard seed does not give up. If you place the mustard seed under a rock, it will find a way to grow out and around the rock and up and still make that tree. It isn't the size of the, the, the seed. It is the persistence of the seed. And for many of us, we lack the, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit moving in our lives because we are not consistent and persistent in prayer, not, not consistent nor persistent in believing that God can do what he says he's going to do. He says, if you had that kind of faith, you'd say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. I can imagine the disciples' eyes open wide as he says this. But of course, in the scripture, mountains are often, there are mountains of sin. Jesus could be, you know, uh, speaking to the fact that this thing can change lives. And I like what it says, and nothing Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. And then Jesus gives the secret. He says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Matthew 17 and verse 21. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And what we find is that there is almost like a formula. Um, if you really want power and when, when life gets super difficult, when the challenge of that wayward child, that, that, that fractured marriage, that, that ill relative or the, the illness that you've been diagnosed with, there is something uh, powerful about this. But most important, it's powerful in its ability to transform characters. Because realistically, when you look at what the nine disciples were lacking, they were lacking the character of Christ. They couldn't have the effect that Christ had because they didn't have the character that Christ had. How do you get to that point? Well, Jesus says it comes by prayer and fasting. So how do you get the sharp mind? I put three things here. There's actually four we're going to discuss. Number one is faith. Number two is prayer. Number three is fasting. Number four is studying God's word, studying God's word. In order to have a sharp mind, these are the things that you would want to do. Um, there's a lot of other things we're going to, we talked about this week. Um, we talked about um, diet. We talked about the influ influence of music and television. Um, there's so much more we could discuss. I haven't gotten to uh, marijuana and alcohol and all of the ill effects of those things. But a sharp mind works in a very uh, powerful and persistent way. We are called to have sharp minds for Christ Jesus. The father of the child is the other person that we gain a great lesson from, because the first thing you need is faith. And I want to liberate you, in a sense, um, from a lot of what we think about faith as we look at this story. In Mark 17, 
in Mark 17. Uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, this is this is Mark chapter 9. I'm sorry, I never changed this thing here. I don't know why I blended Matthew 17 and Mark 17. But here it says, uh, Mark 9, Mark 9, 20 says, um, uh, sorry, this is Mark Matthew 17 and verse 20. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, you have faith as a mustard seed. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Nothing will be impossible to you. This is where we were trying to get to, because church... I don't know about you, but even as a physician, as a as a preacher of the gospel, sometimes some things just seem impossible. It seems like some folk just are not going to hear the word of God. They're not going to be transformed. Like the Valley of Dry Bones in the book of Ezekiel, it just seems like some things are impossible. If we are going to finish the work, if we're going to do what God has us to do, the impossible needs to become possible post-haste. We're going to see that God has a plan for this. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There is power in this little verse in Hebrews chapter 11. If you do not have faith, you cannot please God. Why? Because you can't. you, you don't believe he exists. God created us to be in a loving relationship with us. That doesn't work if we are questioning him, doubting him, and don't believe he really exists. But he said, So he says, um, Paul says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he has a, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What we're going to talk about today is, is the belief part of it and the diligently seeking him part of it. James 2 and verse 19 says, uh, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. Look at what he says. He says that the devils also believe and tremble. Just having an intellectual belief. We talk about this when we talk about the frontal lobe and when we talk about the seal of the living God. Ellen White says, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, but it's, it is not simply an intellectual understanding of truth. It is a spiritual one. The demons believe and they tremble when they think of what is to come upon the earth. They tremble. In fact, in Revelation uh, chapter 12, the Bible speaking of Satan being cast out of heaven, the Bible says, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea for the devil has come down upon you having great wrath. Why does he have such great wrath? Because he knows that he has a short time. Here's what's crazy. The devil knows he has a short time, but many of us behave as if we have all the time in the world. The demons, the devils believe and they tremble. They tremble at the fact that judgment is coming. They tremble at the fact that the time is short. They tremble at the fact that they cannot defeat the blood of Jesus Christ. The very demons and devils tremble at the truth that we often take for granted. But James goes on in James 2 and verse 20, he says, but wilt thou, O vain man, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. The sharp mind doesn't just believe. That belief, that faith is, is transformed into a place that works happen, that it manifests. We are not saved by what we do, but we are, we are saved by what we believe, but what we believe ought to change what we do and how we live. James 2.21 says, it was not Abraham, our father, justified by works, 
when he had offered Isaac, his, his son, upon the altar. See, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. James uses the example of Abraham and his faith, how he took Isaac up into the mountain. This was a character build for Abraham. Remember, Abraham, um, you know, had 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 um, gotten with Hagar and had Ishmael. That there was no faith in that, no faith in him or Sarah when that happened. But there was something powerful about what he does with Isaac. In fact, the Bible says this, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him. It was credited unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Here is the end point. Here's how it gets powerful. It took Abraham years to exercise the faith that he claimed when when God first came to him in Genesis and showed him the stars of heaven and told him that his seed would be like this. He would be the father of a great nation. And the Bible says Abraham believed him. And the Bible says right then and there that in Genesis that Abraham was credited with righteousness. Abraham's belief gave him credit for righteousness he would not display for many years until Isaac was a teenager, which was years later. But James' point is that at some point, the faith he showed all those years earlier blossomed, bloomed, and manifested into his bringing Isaac uh, to the, to, uh, uh, onto the mountain to be sacrificed, his believing in God. So he was credited with it by belief. That's why you're, you're saved by righteousness uh, uh, through faith. But it should manifest into what we actually do. And I like how James finishes chapter uh, chapter two, verse 23. James says, Abraham, and he was called the friend of God. Abraham developed the kind of relationship by faith and by manifesting his faith into how he lived, that he became the friend of God. And let me say this to you, church. If you view God as anything but a friend, you've got work to do on your relationship with him. If you still view God as some tyrant in heaven, yielding lightning bolts, looking to strike you down the first time you do something wrong, you don't really understand the God that you serve. Through faith, God becomes like a friend that we can talk to, that we can commune with, that we can lay our troubles upon. And that's where Abraham got to. Mark 9 Verse 22, the father gives us a bit, and like I said, this is to liberate us. The father of this young boy gives us some information with which we can actually uh, help to grow our faith. Mark 9, 22 says, and oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can, can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So when the father gets there, the nine disciples couldn't do anything. The father says, that I brought my son to his disciples um, to cast out the demon out of my son, and they couldn't do it. Jesus says, how long has he had this? In Mark 9, Jesus says, how long has he had this? And the father says, since he was a child. And then he says, it has cast him into the fire, into the waters to destroy him. The man asked Jesus a question. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He ifs Jesus. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The man who had enough faith to bring his son looking for Jesus and his disciples still doubted that Jesus could do what the man needed done or wanted done. Verse 23, Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Jesus is almost like he's saying, look, brother, who are you ifing? You can't if me. 
I'm the one that stood out on nothing and spoke and the world came into existence. I am the one who formed man out of the dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. Jesus is saying, you can't if me. He says, listen, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And this is why this is liberating, because it's not that we won't have doubt, but it's that when you have doubt, church, take your doubt to Jesus. The problem for some of us is we take our doubt and we take it to the world. We take it to our friends. We take our doubt um, and hide it away inside of us. And like a malignant cancer, doubt grows inside of us and begins to destroy us. You, When you have doubts, it's okay. Do like this, Father. Take your problem and your doubt to Jesus. And you can say, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Because that's the Father's response. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. You can say, Lord, I have the faith enough to come looking for you. I show up at church, but somehow, Lord, I don't believe fully. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Here's what the Desire of Ages, page 429, says of this. Look not to self, but to Christ. He who healed the sick and cast out demons when he walked among men is the same mighty redeemer today. Faith comes by the word of God. Then grasp his promise. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6 and verse 37. Cast yourself at his feet with the cry, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I love what uh, Sister White says here. She, she says, you can never perish while you do this. Never. This is to liberate you. The father said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The, 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 the way that we can read this is as long as we're willing to take our doubt sincerely to Christ. The spirit of prophecy says you can never perish while you do this. Never. So what has to happen? Well, before we get into the didactics of this thing today, one of the things that happened to happen is we, we have to recognize that the seal of the living God, as we mentioned earlier, and we'll talk more about that uh, over the next couple of sessions, the seal of the living God is, it represents uh, a, a character that reflects Christ, that has been so molded by the Holy Spirit uh, that it reflects Christ's character. Here's what it says here, um, manuscript 173, just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth. Look at this, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Indeed, it has begun already. The judgments of God are now upon the land to give us warning that we may know what is coming. As soon as we are sealed. And here's the thing, like that father, it's not just an intellectual belief. The father had enough belief to bring his son to Jesus. Like he, he, he understood, he heard the stories. He knew this man could work miracle, but spiritually he had not fully settled into that truth. And there are many in the church who have intellectually settled into the truth. They, they believe what we believe, but spiritually it is not manifested in a different life. They are still plagued by the demons, uh, the by the bad behaviors, by the by the by the by the by the habits and addictions. They're still plagued by the doubt, still plagued by all of those different things. Because spiritually, it is the, the Holy Spirit has not come into their minds to sharpen it and to transform them. It's not enough to just believe. James says the demons believe and tremble. We've got to believe, and then it's got to be applied. 
We've got to submit to what we believe in such a way that we don't live the same way. So how does the power of all of this work out? Well, there's an interesting study. This is Science News. It says spirituality, religion uh, make protect against major depression by thickening the brain cortex. If you can move beyond just a simple belief, I believe that it actually begins to develop the mind anatomically. And that's the science is beginning to say that. Of course, this is very shallow. This doesn't get to where the Holy Spirit gets to it. it is, the modern science can't, can't really do that. But it begins to give you a hint that if we are going to receive the seal of God in our foreheads, which is the ultimate goal, this is what will be protective according to Revelation chapter 7, uh, it takes that we are every day working to get to know God. Every single day we are being sealed preparing our mind for that seal, and we are being prepared, prepared for what is coming upon the earth. We need a sharp mind that has been trained and prepared. Council for the Church, page 333 says, not all who profess to keep the Sabbath will be sealed. There are many, even among those who teach the truth to others who will not receive the seal of God in their foreheads. They had the light of truth. They knew their master's will. They understood every point of our faith, but they had not corresponding works. Not one of us will receive the seal of God while our characters have one spot or stain upon them. It is left with us to remedy the defects in our characters, to cleanse the soul temple from of every defilement. Then the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. This is rich with meaning. Um, this thing is telling you um, that we, we, one, we've got to have the manifesto works. We, you know, if we really believe it, as Ellen White says, it should spiritually transform us. Number one, number two, we should, you, people should be able to see it. I, I joke all the time. I don't know how there are so many mean Christians uh, that, that, you know, that aren't kind to people, uh, arrogant Christians. This, this tells you that conversion hasn't fully happened. The spirit of God has not really manifested in you. And this is something that you must deal with with God to, to, to move to a place of constant humility, of constant um, self-sacrifice, always asking God in and asking him to work upon us. Because our characters cannot have one spot or stain. That is a frightening thought, church. Sister White says it is left with us to remedy the defects of our characters, to cleanse the soul temple from every defilement. Then she said the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And let me tell you something, going back to the, how difficult it is to reach people in this day and age, we are going to need the latter rain. It is going to take Holy Ghost power. I believe that before long, there will be supernatural manifestation by the people of God in order to reach people who have been so hardened against God, so hardened against the scripture. They're going to, that the Spirit of God is going to have to actually work to bring these folk into the fold. So character correction, there's two pieces to it. One, sin must be dealt with. Characters must be corrected. There's a correction to the character that must happen. And in the Bible, there's one great place where this happens, and that is in the book of Psalm, chapter 51. As we talk about the sharpening the mind, as David um, is caught by the prophet Nathan, uh, not caught, but the, it, it is brought to his attention that David's secret sin has not been is not such a secret. Eventually, David writes the, the 51st division of the psalm um, kind of as a response to that. And I'm just going to read some of it 
um, as a way to show that none of us, you know, all of us, I should say, in our imperfections, have a need to come to Christ the way that David did. Psalm 51 says, have mercy upon me, O God. And this is talking about asking God to help you with the character. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. There's a book of works in heaven where our, where our transgressions are written and it those, those, our name must be written in the Lamb's book of life, but the transgressions must be blotted out. And I believe blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ. David then says, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Some folk will never gain victory over their sin because they won't even recognize they have it. They will pretend they will not just lie to everyone else. They will even lie to themselves. But let me tell you something. You can't fool God. David says, listen, my sin is ever before me. Verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. And again, he says here, and blot out all my iniquities. But verse 10 is what I want you to get. David then says, create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. If you are someone listening who, is, who has the, the daunting challenge of trying to, to, to uh, be reconciled to God after a moral fall, after severe sin, or, or you're still dealing with um, a habit or, or a behavior that is not um, acceptable in the eyesight of the living God, David not only cheated with a married man's, married man's wife, he then had the man killed. His sin was serious. And, 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 the, and the reason that this is important for me to tell you is you may think that you have outsinned God's ability to save you. But let me tell you something. You cannot and have not outsinned God's ability to save you. If you are willing to repent, give up the sin and, and, and ask for God's forgiveness, ask to be purged with hyssop um, and, and to be washed whiter than snow. I can tell you that today, God still can cleanse and heal and save. You have not outsinned God's ability to save you. And once you come to that conclusion, there's some steps that you can take to gain powerful victory. First of all, Learn the power of prayer. Four things we're going to look at. Power of prayer is the first one. You've got to learn the power of prayer. In fact, Matthew 26 and verse 41 says it like this. Matthew 26, verse 40, 41 says it like this. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. If we are to gain the victory, we're supposed to gain prayer is critical. We are told to watch and pray. Now, remember what we talked about watching earlier in the week um, and getting the brain to be in its, in, its, in its best state by avoiding certain things. But the other side of it is we've got to actually pray. You got to pray that you enter not into temptation. Why? Because your, as I said yesterday, your body will conspire to kill you. It will work to destroy you. And so the, even though we're willing in our minds and in our hearts, we're saying, hey, I want to live for Christ. The whole time, the flesh is working against us. There's power in prayer. And this book, Finding God in the Waves, uh, this is how one um, evangelical left God and then he, he came back to God through science as he began to study certain things. He was convinced of his faith. I can't 
I can't really tell you whether or not to read the book. I'll, I'll just get you an excerpt from it. Um, and from that book, uh, a few slides here, he says the parietal lobe, part of the brain, of course, is the part of our brain that keeps track of our immediate surroundings and sense of physical presence. It gives us our sense of taste and touch. So it's the part of the brain that helps us figure out where we are in, in time and space in a sense, or especially in space. And it creates an ongoing map that's vital to the lower brain when you're trying to escape a source of danger in your environment. So the parietal lobe is like the GPS ways of your brain in terms, so when you're in trouble, it's what gives you the, the gives you that feeling to try and fl to flee, to the fight or flight. It, it's a tr how do you get away? And this is even get away from the stress of your bills. It, it, is, it, is, it is the parietal lobe that does that. But watch this. But researchers found that religious people with a consistent prayer practice basically shut down, basically shut down their parietal lobe during prayer. This reduced activity can create the sensation that one is leaving this reality and connecting with something greater and less physical. He says, I've experienced this many times and I was fascinated to learn I'm not the only one. He says, neuroscientists have found that people who pray regularly have thicker gray matter in their prefrontal cortex. That's your brain CEO, he explains, responsible for focus and willpower, and the anterior cingulate uh, cortex, the part of your brain responsible for compassion and empathy. He goes on to say, it is not enough to simply believe in God because only prayer and meditation, and meditation, I would say, is meditating on God's word, will, will turn that belief into a neural network that changes your outlook and behavior. Even when the news cycle is depressing or a situation in your life seems hopeless, you can hold on to the knowledge that God is with you and that the overall arc of life will work out for good. Most remarkable, he says, to me is that is the fact that regular prayer can work for anyone, regardless of their religious background. Even people who self-identify as atheists are likely to report feeling close to God if they pray or meditate consistently for six weeks. Church, there is power in prayer. I've seen studies where they double-blind groups in ICUs, and one and one set of prayer, uh, uh, patients are prayed for, and the other group is not. And it seems, based on the based on the studies, that the group that is prayed for has better outcomes than the group that is not. There is power in prayer, great power in prayer, and many of us are 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 not. Um, are not doing our spiritual life justice because we don't pray. Some of us, our only prayers are what we might say before we eat or a few words with our spouse or what the, what we hear when we go to church on Sabbath morning. It is not enough. You must have a vibrant prayer life. And we'll talk a little bit more about how you can do that in a minute, but you've got to have a vibrant prayer life that is um, persistent and consistent. Right, you've got to pray without ceasing, um, like the, uh, the uh, like the importunate woman. You've got to come before the king over and over again, making your plea until you are heard. Prayer is power. Ellen White says this in the book of prayer, in the book prayer page one. She says we acknowledge that we need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but this can be accomplished only as we pray individually and collectively. When God's people pray earnestly, sincerely, individually, and collectively, God will answer. 
Great things will happen in and among God's people, and the world will feel the impact as the Holy Spirit comes to equip and empower his people. Are we praying like we should? I mentioned yesterday or the day when Dr. Robinson was a host, um, the plans for, for, for clinic expansion and so forth. Let me tell you something. After this message, um, some of what is said ought to be applied. Increase the amount of folk collectively praying, praying the amount of folk individually praying uh, with a unified mind for God to move on those grounds, for God to do what he said he will do. There is power in prayer. How do you improve your prayer life? Here's a few things. Well, number one, find a prayer group and a prayer partner. It's very good to have the accountability of a prayer partner that you can share things with, things that you wouldn't want to share with many people, but there's someone that you trust, that you pray with. There's a group that you trust, that you pray with. And I, the beauty of technology on WhatsApp, on my phone, I've got um, several prayer groups. If I need prayers, I can quickly shoot a message, even while I'm at work, even while I'm under stress, um, even in the heat of the moment, I can shoot it out, say, hey, pray quickly for me. I need a word of prayer on this or that. Or sometimes I don't even say anything, just church pray but have a prayer group and a prayer partner i always say keep a prayer journal i think that's important because it will give you faith as you in a month and six months in a year you go back and read what you prayed about and see how god led you through that thing it will grow your faith exponentially I want you to get to a point where you schedule a time of prayer. So you have it set up so that just like you set up to do to go to work, you're set up to do other things. You have prayer times at least three times a day that are scheduled times um, that you pray. Obviously, that doesn't stop you from praying anytime you are moved to pray, but you, you, you build prayer into your life. Number four. Learn to always be in a mindset of prayer. Paul says to pray without ceasing. Always be in a mindset of prayer. And then learn a structure to your prayers as well as learning specific prayers. So I use what I call it, a sanctuary version of prayer where you move through the sanctuary and at each step you do something different. You, you enter into the gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. So you start the prayer with thanksgiving. Uh, the second step is that is the is the is the um, altar of sacrifice that you that the first thing that you meet. So the next thing you do is you ask for forgiveness of sin, um, and then of course you pray for others. You, when you claim Bible promise, you pray for, and I go through this when I pray my prayers. There's a there's steps that I take, um, and then there are times when I pray completely freestyle because I need God to move on something. So. Um, uh, learn uh, different ways, structures of prayer, uh, but also pray the Bible promises. I've, I've found power. One of my favorite ones is found in the book of Isaiah, um, uh, or maybe it's in the Psalms, but it's, it's the, the passage of scripture that says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And when I was in serious trouble and really being persecuted and really being tried, those passages, I would say, Lord, you say in your word, um, that nothing is impossible for you. You say in your word that you'd never leave me nor forsake me. Lord, you say in my word that you would confound and confuse my enemies. And I would pray the promises of scripture out loud to God because God cannot lie. So learn to pray the Bible promises. Next thing is the power of fasting. So Jesus said to his disciples, they said, listen, Lord, why could you cast this thing out? And we couldn't. Jesus says, some things come only by prayer and fasting. 
how does fasting work? Well, there's a lot of ways you can fast. I won't really get into that today, except um, that if you, if you, um, at least we should all fast every day by eating, um, the not eating our last meal of the day too late, um, and then making sure, and then we break fast in the morning. That's that's a fast every day, but there should be days of the week when we fast again um, from a meal, at least miss a meal. Maybe you miss that second the second meal of the day and don't have any others. So you eat the first meal of the day, or a day where you don't eat anything. Some folk, when real trial comes, you fast for three and four and five days or longer. Obviously, consider all your medical conditions, but there's power in fasting. And if you can't fast from food. You can definitely fast from the internet. You can fast from the media. You can fast from, definitely fasting from things like secular music. You can fast from things. And during that time, use it to build your relationship with Christ. Here's what here's what they say about fasting. And this is food fasting. Um, the power of fasting, it may boost brain function and prevent neurodegenerative disorders. One study in mice showed that practicing intermittent fasting for 11 months improved both brain function and brain structure. Another, other animal studies have reported that fasting could protect and increase the generation of nerve cells um, to help enhance cognitive function. Because fasting may also relieve inflammation, it could also aid in preventing neurodegenerative disorders. In particular, studies in animals suggest that fasting may protect against and improve outcomes for conditions such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's. And we know one of the things that fasting done is it brings the, the, the levels of insulin down in the body. So you become more insulin sensitive. You also become more leptin sensitive, which is the hormone made by fat cells that tells you when you're full. But a lot of us, because we're constantly eating, we're in a constant state of elevated leptin. Um, our brain is never told, um, our, our brain is always being told it's full. So it stops recognizing leptin. It becomes leptin resistant. Um, and then it's difficult to control the appetite. Fasting helps with all of that. Um, and it brings clarity to the mind by detoxifying and allowing us to focus away from our own physical wants to what God wants. And so there's some other things here, just, just a quick to show you the power of fasting here. It says, um, uh, optimize neuron bio, bioenergetics, optimize neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, meaning the brain is, is, is more able to be malleable and molded. And um, so that would mean that under the influence of the Holy Spirit while you're fasting, the if Holy Spirit can mold your, your mind and your thinking um, and gives you more uh, neuron resilience. Um, as you can see, what, what decreases and increases there, but it gives you more resilience. Um, your brain literally becomes stronger. And so there's a stepwise process that is given as to how we um, move our characters towards him. So we're talking about prayer and fasting. We're talking about the studying of God's word in a second. But Peter gives this chain. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according to his divine power that that uh, power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and to virtue. We've been called to these things, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these he might be partakers of the divine nature. Let me pause here. We are given exceeding great and precious promises. If we understand the promises given us in the Bible, and like I said, if we pray the Bible promises, Peter says something profound. 
He says that if you can do that, you become a partaker of the divine nature. What is this? This is talking about having the character of Christ. And what will you have done? You will have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Wow. We can become partakers of that divine nature. Christ is returning for people whose characters look like him. Verse five, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So you start with faith as we did. From there, you move to virtue. That's understanding goodness and wanting to do goodness and to virtue knowledge from, from, from the desire to do good and desire to be pure, you get knowledge. In other words, you get instruction into how to be pure and good right? So you get that through Bible study. When I was a kid growing up, um, before people joined the church, they'd get six weeks, eight weeks worth of Bible study. No one came into the church not knowing what we believed. You need the knowledge. I remember working in um, in, in the deep south in Alabama um, as a physician, and um, we did a crusade, and we baptized some people. It was a big deal. We didn't get many baptisms down there. One gentleman, after he was baptized, as soon as he came out of the pool, he was smoking a cigarette. I thought that was odd, but I said, you know, maybe he's still dealing with that addiction. You know, he's driving home smoking a cigarette. I saw him in his car. And then at one of the potlucks, he brought some unclean food. And I said, wait a minute, how is he bringing unclean food to the potluck? Turned out he had never been told our health message. They skipped it because they didn't want to offend him, and they wanted to make sure that they got him into the pool. Well, the problem with that was when he found out that he couldn't smoke or eat pork, he was very upset and felt he'd been duped and left the church. To virtue, you must give knowledge. It's not enough to just want to do good. There is instruction the scripture gives. Because once you have the knowledge of what's right, what's wrong, what's expected and not expected, then temperance kicks in. Self-control. And from that self-control, now you develop patience. Why? Because you've got to wait and trust on in God. To, get, to allow you to be temperate. And from that patience, you gain godliness. This is when you begin to look like the character of Christ. And from that, you gain brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness, charity, which is love, which is giving, which is sharing, which is all of those things. As you notice, there are a lot of folk who try and say, listen, I'm, I'm, I have brotherly kindness and charity, and they stick that at the front of it. The reason Peter gives you this, this, this cadence, this way of moving through it, is because your, your kindness and your brotherly love is not, is not um, you don't do it in order to be saved. You do it because you're saved, because you're transformed. There are a lot of folk who put that at the beginning and say, okay, I'm saved, but they do not have the knowledge. They do not have the temperance. They do not have the patience, nor the real godliness. And so they are a shadow of the type of Christian God is calling for. He wants us to be brotherly kind, have brotherly kindness and have charity, but God wants us to go through the steps because he wants our characters to look like Christ. Peter says this, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And I like this last verse, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. If you do these things, you shall never fall. We, so we've gotten from this lesson, um, the spirit of prophecy tells us that when the, when, when, um, when the father of the demoniac boy says, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. If we pray that prayer, um, um, you know, um, that, that is a prayer that will protect us. 
that we'll never uh, will never fail if we if, as we pray that prayer. But we're also told if we follow what Peter says, and this is an, a, a stepwise approach to developing the character of Christ here in Second Peter chapter one. If we follow the steps, if we work as God says, if we gain the knowledge, well, how do you gain the knowledge? Well, you've got to study God's word, the power of the word. Um, and for many of us, we the, the you know the Bible just collects dust. But the Bible is something you want to read. Sometimes you read it up, read it through like a novel. Sometimes you you read it through by subject matter. You look up fasting and you look at everything the Bible says on fasting, or marriage and everything the Bible says on marriage. But you 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 use the word to instruct and to and to improve. Ellen White says it like this: In Christ is the fountain of all knowledge. In him, our hopes of eternal life are centered. He is the greatest teacher the world has ever known. And if we desire to enlarge the minds of the children and youth and win them, if possible, to a love of the Bible, we should fasten their minds upon, we should fashion their minds upon the plain and simple truth, digging out that which has been buried beneath the rubbish of tradition and letting the jewels shine forth. I want you to get this, church. The study of the Bible is one of the most important things you can do as a Christian. There is power in God's word. And for many of us, we only, we get all of our, 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 our biblical truth secondhand. We get it from what the pastor says. We get it from what the preacher says. You've got to get this thing for yourself. You've got to understand this thing for yourself. There is a time of trouble coming and no one is going to lay down their lives for, a, for doctrines or truths that they do not understand for themselves. If all we've gotten is secondhand new, spiritual nutrition from others, when the time comes, we will be confounded by the words of the world. And we will not stand up in the time of trouble. We will fall away if we are not will, if we're not studying God's word. This is one of the most important things. And again, we talked about prayer, but when it comes to studying the Bible, you should have a, a, a uh, um, a plan to read the Bible through. You should also have a, a, a plan for daily devotion in the Bible, not just a devotional book that quotes the Bible, but the Bible itself. And you should study as a family, book after book in the Bible. And I should have made a slide out of this, but this is how you do that. One, you get, um, you, you obviously you pick the book. I always say start with the book of John. Um, and then what you do is you get a good Bible commentary. And the SDA Bible commentary is actually a phenomenal Bible commentary. So you get the Bible commentary. And when you get to parts that are difficult to understand, you use the commentaries to help you. And there are other ones that you can find. But the other thing that you do is you get to where you learn to use the concordance. So when you want, you run into a difficult text, um, you can actually use the concordance to find other places in the Bible where, where um, that subject matter is covered and get all of it. Isaiah says that when we study the Bible, we should study it here a little, there a little, precept upon precept, line upon line. We are to look all through the Bible to get a better understanding of it. And at the same time, read the Psalms as a way of worship. Let me tell you something. When I was going through my trials, and I came to Guam after those trials, when I was going through my trials, I would read the Psalms. The Psalms became like food to me. They were like like a, like a spiritual um, uh, um, anti-anxiety, a spiritual anxiolytic in order order to, to, to bring down the stress levels that I was having, to read the words of the psalmist and his encouragement transformed me. The Bible has to be the blueprint of your life. 
Ellen White says here, encourage them to search into these subjects. And the effort put forth will be an invaluable discipline. The unfolding of God as represented in Jesus Christ furnishes a theme that is grand to contemplate and that will, if studied, sharpen the mind and elevate and ennoble the faculties. As the human agent learns these lessons in the school of Christ, trying to become as Christ was meek and lowly of heart, he will learn the most useful of all lessons. That intellect, here it is, that intellect is supreme only as it is sanctified by a living connection with God. A lot of people want a sharp mind so they can say they're smarter, they have a higher IQ, they do better at work, they do better. The spirit of prophecy is warning us that intellect is supreme only as it is sanctified by a living connection with God. And that is why so many um, will have trouble in their spiritual walk because they're looking for intellect devoid of God's influence. Now, um, I'll finish with just a, I have a couple minutes left. Uh, I'll finish with uh, an interesting story where all of this was applied. I was doing a crusade, uh, preaching on the wonderful island of Jamaica out in a town called Frankfield. And I remember there was a, uh, as we were maybe less than a few, just a few days into the crusade, a gentleman came um, who many of the people that were in the church or from the community were, had some concerns about. They said that he was, a, as they say in Jamaica, he was a gunman, he was a bad man. He was someone who had committed, you know, they thought was a criminal and they were very afraid he was coming to the tent. In Jamaica, they don't really follow noise, or noise ordinances. So the sound was being blasted all over the place. They were worried as he was standing out a few feet outside of the tent that maybe he was there for trouble. We began to pray for him and fast for him. And for the, of course, for the effort in general, and what we found as we were praying for this young man is that every day he came closer to the tent till eventually he was sitting in the back of the tent. And some of the elders were very concerned that he was sitting inside the church and inside the tent. But he started to move even closer. And we, we noticed after a while that he began to bring family members, a woman, children. When it was all over, we were praying for him. And one night when I made the appeal, this man that they were also afraid of, big, really tall, big guy, they were also afraid of, during the appeal, he got up, came down front. This is the power of prayer, the power of the word of God and its instruction and the Holy Spirit, the power of fasting as we did all of these things. He got up and he walked down front. And that man, whom they um, ascribed criminality to, gave his life to Jesus Christ, not just him, but he and his entire family. Church, the sharp mind is the mind that has accepted Christ and allowed the character to be molded, the frontal lobe to be changed so that we have the character of Christ and are ready to receive the seal of the living God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you, Father, for the truths of your scripture. Like the father of the demoniac boy, Lord, we cry. Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Help us to grow in you and to be more like you, to have the faith that would move mountains. Bless your people to this end, we pray. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, 
please visit www.audioverse.org.